you are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leaf Spin. Welcome everyone to the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show, brought to you by the Hockey News. With over 2 million dedicated readers, the Hockey News established in 1947 is the authoritative source of hockey and the number one hockey publication in North America. With an ever-growing podcast network and a video database on top of an already established print and digital brand, the Hockey News is there to cover all the major hockey stories from around the world. Visit THN.com deal to get the best value on subscription to the Hockey News. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Lease fan, and with me as always, Rick Squid 5. How are we doing, Squid? Oh boy, I'm doing pretty good. It's, you know what, I'm, it's kind of difficult. I'm out golfing in the mornings, but then, it, you know, there's not a whole lot going on except for the hockey games in the evening. But now I'm starting to read things and reading about this pandemic and, you know, the possibilities going forward. And it's like, are we in for another total lockdown? And, you know, the chances are that that might happen. Yep. Yep. So, and while these people have to realize that this is a very serious thing and you've got to stay socially distanced and stop forming big groups and partying. Stop well, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's the thing. It's the younger generation that are kind of expanding their bubbles or they're bringing in other people in that, that aren't, necessarily in their bubble and uh things have gotten worse so hopefully you know we can take it back a notch and uh yeah move forward yep well i mean it's it's another feather in a cap for the uh, nhl that have done just an absolutely phenomenal job uh with this whole playoff and the bubble experience for the players and you know as we've been saying right from the beginning all those naysayers are being proven 150 percent wrong uh, this is going to be going down as one of the toughest Stanley Cups to ever win with the with these players have gone through. And uh, I guess, you know, we're going to look back on this. It's going to be definitely one worth uh, remembering, that's for sure. But uh, with all of that, it does bring some news, good and bad. And the hockey world lost another one of its members, a longtime member, Bob Nevin. We'd like to take a second here just to pair condolences to the Nevin family, to his wife, Linda. I know from uh, personally for myself, he was a regular visitor to the room uh, along with his wife, uh, Linda, and the two of them would always step up to help with any of the fundraisers that we held or any of our events. And, uh, you know, the one thing I remember, Bob, was I think you and I were talking off Fair Squid and we mentioned that he was quiet, but he also could be extremely funny. And I recall oh. one time after one of our monthly hockey talks that I'd moderate, the topic gets through to punch him like, and some of his antics, the guys who liked him, who disliked him, and some of you start smiling right away and Punch's name gets brought up during his tenure with the Maple Leafs both times. I can't, After, I can't say too much though because he traded for me. So <laughs> that's true too. So you gotta you gotta you gotta be nice about it, that's for sure. But I remember after this one particular event, and we had been talking about Punch had come up and he'd be in the subject, and all of a sudden Bob walked up and said, Oh Mike. I, I, you know, I, I really appreciated what you guys talked about today. And it was really fun and great. But listen, I don't know why you didn't come and talk to me about punch. I could have given you the real story on an effing asshole. And, and of course, he had traded Bob. So he had a little bit of an axe to grind. But it just cracked me up. And just a couple of guys standing around. But again, you must have spent some time at Nebby or South Squid. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was a regular in our alumni box. Uh, was there a lot with his wife, Linda. And you know what? I had a lot of conversations with him. And, and like you said, he, he was pretty quiet. But once you got into a conversation with him, he could get pretty animated. <laughs> and, <laughs> and 
you know, even even at his age, and and uh, uh, he could get pretty am- animated. But he was a great alumni. He was a diehard Lee fan. He was there a lot and uh, uh, had a lot of time to to sit down and talk with him. Many 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 nights, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it, I mean, it just it's very sad because we've lost Red Kelly, Johnny Bauer, Eddie Shack, now Bob Nevin, and all those guys from our genre and our era that we grew up watching these guys and admiring the way they play slowly, that 60s roster starting to get thinner and thinner year after year. And for somebody like me, uh, this is one of the reasons why I think it's imperative and very important that we preserve the history of the game from past generations to pass on to the younger generations so they can appreciate where the game has come from and where it's going. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more, 100%, uh, Mike. It's, you know, I mean, all those guys that, uh, you know, the Johnny Bauer, and I mean, probably the only guy left from, or one of the only guys is Dave Keon. And, you know, he's not around that often. But, you know, we, I miss those guys because I used to love to talk to them about what it was like back in, when, they, when they played and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's funny because – when we get together with some of the current players at, at events and stuff, um, there's not a whole lot of conversation about what was it like when you played, you know, but that was one of the things that we always wanted to know. We always ask these guys like, you know, what was it like? And, and how was it traveling by train to all the cities and everything? And, uh, you know, but they don't ask those questions and, and, and it's too bad because, you know, we could, you know, Phil, in fact, it's funny because I played golf uh, yesterday with a pilot for Air Canada. And they fly some of the charters for the Jets and Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto. And uh, he was saying, you know, that, oh, yeah, but they got all, they only have 50 seats. They're all first class seats and everything in, in their A320. And I, I told him what we flew on the Convair 580s and 640s. And, and he just laughed and he went, wow. He said, that must have been very difficult flying on those things, he said. And, uh, you know, it was. It was a lot different. Uh, I remember one time going from Boston to St. Louis. It took us nine hours. And we had to stop for fuel because the headwinds were so – So, yeah, it was like uh, – I mean, it's – it's a whole different ball game now or, or hockey game and, and the way things are done. But, you know, that, that's the way it is. And the revenues have gone up extremely high. And, you know, that's the way things are done now. And, and I get it. Um, I just wish I had a chance to sit down with some of them and fill them in on what it was like when we played. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's very, very true. And I think that's, again, as we've said, uh, without repeating ourselves, that's why I just think it's so important that this does get passed on to, to the new generations. Now, speaking of which, for the new generations, there's, we can actually do reminisce a little bit here with you going back, because Leaf just announced before we went, uh, we started recording this afternoon, uh, that they've hired Paul McLean as an assistant to join Keith's staff. And they've just hired Manny Mahaltra as well. So it looks like they've beefed up on the assistant coach's position. He was an ex-head uh, coach. He's been recently with Columbus. And 
You know, I guess the two questions I have for you here. Number one, you played against him, I assume, when he was with Winnipeg, and you must remember a few things about him. And number two, I wonder who pulled the trigger on this. Was this a management decision or was this Sheldon Keith? Well, that one I can't answer. <laughs> yes, of course. That, that was a loaded question. Okay? <laughs> That's... But I do remember Paul. I remember playing against him, and he, he's yeah. a big man. He's a big, big man. He's another Maritimer, too, by the way. And, uh, you had to get that in there, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I had to, yeah, for <laughs> sure. And, uh, but, I mean, I remember him. He scored a lot of goals, and he scored yes. a lot of goals around the net, like five, eight feet out. Uh, most of his goals were scored in that area. And uh, there's no question he had the best mustache in the league. Uh, <laughs> when I does. played against him. Other than Lanny, I, I, him and Lanny were pretty close, I would say, as far as the best mustache in the National Hockey League. What, the same barber? Well, oh, they probably <laughs> did. Uh, they're a little different color, but pretty close. Well, I think I, I mean, I, I mean, I didn't mean to set up with that question with uh, management or Keith because we don't, but I, there's obviously we've talked about this in the past because, and, and you brought up a good point about this a couple of weeks ago that once, if management is the one doing the hiring like they did in the Babcock last year, you know, the writing's on the wall for you that you better produce, or guess what? Your guy's standing either to the left or the right of you behind the bench. But if it's the coach, it may give him a little bit more easy, but this side, I would have to say it's probably a combination of both, just as a total guess on my part. Yeah, I, I think it is. And, uh, you know, I've talked to guys coaching in the NHL now and so on. And a lot of times now it's, it, it used to be the coach's decision on all the assistants. Now it's kind of like, okay, we're going to let you hire one or two and we're going to hire one. The management that is. Mm -hmm. And so it's not always up to the coach now. It's a little bit different. At one point it was the coach would hire all his own guys. And now I think it's kind of switched where management has a say, not only in all the hirings, but I think they hire one guy themselves. Yeah. And, it's uh, just, yeah. It looks like, it looks like that. I mean, and it, it, and it also sends a little signal that, you may have gotten a pink slip this summer, but we're going to give you another chance just to maybe shake things up a little bit here. But you're on watch. And that's kind of the message. And in this new win now league at the NHL, it is and basically every sport. It's not yeah. surprising. And you know what? It's the way business has to be done. So I, I think so. And I so mean, uh, you know, if you, if you don't win for two years, three years, then, you know, they've got to move on and they got to, change things around. Yep. I mean, you can't fire all the players. And we're seeing a good example of that with uh, Tampa and Dallas, which uh, they, they played game four a couple hours after we were finished recording this afternoon. A little bit of a drubbing by Lightning the other day, 5-2. They got a big boost throughout the lineup with the return of their captain, Stephen Stamkos. You've got to just, you just got to admire this guy. He hasn't played since February. Actually, I was at the game when he got hurt against the Leafs, and he hasn't played, been stuck in the bubble the whole time, training by himself. You know what that's like coming back from an injury as opposed to playing at a real high game speed level. Steps on the ice in third shift, makes an absolute Hall of Fame move, the blue line, steps in and roofs it. And just the look of elation on his face and on his teammates in the bench, I'll tell you, Dallas must have gone, uh-oh, here we go. Well, it was a big boost. There's no question about that. I think the players and the coaches were very, very happy for him. Uh, unfortunately, he, he 
played one more shift and didn't complete the game and is not uh, able to play tonight. But I got to tell you, Tampa Bay, I mean, they were tenacious. Like, I mean, they were on the puck all night long. They were just relentless in, in their forecheck and everything. It was just unbelievable to watch them play and how, how hard they played. And uh, I think having their captain come back, even though he, he didn't be able to, wasn't able to complete the game, he sat on the bench. And I think that in itself probably, uh, you know, motivated everybody just a little bit more. Just what, that's all they needed was a little bit more. And you can see they got it. You can see it. And, uh, the, and the old adage goes, to win a Stanley Cup, your best players have to play, outplay the other team's best players. And Tampa's best players are outplaying yeah. Dallas's best players. And Tyler Sagan, he's trying hard. You can see but that puck is just not bouncing for him. Jamie Benn cannot do it all on his own. Uh, and unless he starts producing, this could be over pretty quick, I would say. They've got to get more out of the big guys. Well, that top line, Radulov, Sagan, and, and Ben, I mean, they're not, they're not producing at all. And if Dallas is going to win the Stanley Cup, they, they got to get hot. I, I don't mean just produce uh, one goal per game or something like that. they got to get hot because Tampa's top line is really hot right now. And, and uh, they're getting contributions from their other lines as well and from the blue line. And so I, if, unless that top line in Dallas starts to produce, it could be, it could be a very quick series. Well, they've been able to sort of skate by with the goaltending of O'Dobbin because he's been standing on his head. The last couple of games, he's looked a little bit ordinary, which he's entitled to at some point. But they've just got to get more out of their, their big guys in. But there's still lots of hockey to play. They seem to be having a little bit of magic following them around Dallas. So don't rule them out just yet because they can bounce back pretty quickly because they were still in the game and they were a goal away from just turning this around. But I'll, I'll say this. The one thing that's really impressed me on both sides that, that I've been watching are, are the defensemen. Hedman and Sergachev and Tamp in particular. Wouldn't Montreal like to have that trade back? I don't know yeah. why they ever made it to begin with. But. And, and my goodness. And, uh, but he's a restricted free agent this year if they want to jump in and maybe throw an offer sheet at him. But in Dallas, Heskinen, of course, is a stud. But the guy that's really impressing me is Jamie Lesek. He just seems to be a big, big man who's usually a stay-at-home defenseman, but the way he's been jumping into the play, he's been producing goals and driving to the net. As Leaf fans, you knew we'd have to swing it back to the Leafs at some point, of course, even though they've been out of it for a month and a half. But the one thing that Leafs can take a little comfort from is the fact that I think when Kyle Dupas was designing his team or putting his team together, this is what he envisioned his defense being able to do. The only difference is... He's got half the equation right. The equation he's missing, the equation he's missing is that these guys, the four that we mentioned and the rest, all defend in their own end as yeah. strong as they go in the other end. Yeah, they're very good in their own zone. And Jamie, you know, it, it almost looked like a year or so ago that he was finished, that, you know, he was going to be an American League player. I coached him in minor midget, the young mm -hmm. Nats, when he was a 15-year-old. And he was a big tall guy, kind of like a Bambi out there, yeah. you know, but we worked with him and worked with him and, you know, he worked extremely hard, obviously. And, uh, but it looked like a year or two ago that perhaps, you know, he was destined to finish his career in the minors, but 
he's really uh, you know worked extremely hard, and, and I, I like the way he's playing. I, I think he's playing well defensively. He's rushing with the puck, getting deep down into the other team's zone, and making things happen. Yeah, I mean, and it's Haskinen is is great. Lindell, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, uh, what's the other guy? Uh, Klingberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're all good, and and. Tampa's defense have been outstanding as well. Yeah, so it's been uh, it's been a terrific series so far. Played at a very high level, and again, we'll watch with interest again tonight, as we always do. So we will. I think it's about time to turn it over to our guest that we've got today. Now we've tried to take a little different twist, and we want to we want to shake things up a little bit from time to time and talk about all pro hockey because we think it's so important. Now, a couple of our guests today, I think you're going to really enjoy these guys. Maybe you, Squid, in particular, on one name by the name of Justin Five. I don't know if that name rings a bell with you or anything, but uh, a little bit. Yeah. So him and this other young guy by the name of Joshua Schultz, they've, they're a couple of pros who've spent the majority of their careers in the minors. Yeah. Now. But from my point of view, I think it's very important people to understand, one, how tough it is to make it and stick in the National Hockey League. Everybody's not a first overall pick or for top five pick that gets an automatic slot into an NHL Hockey Cup. It doesn't work like that. Number two, how many great players are playing at lower levels? Mm-hmm. And we listened to Paul Bissonnette a couple of weeks ago tell us about his career in the Channel. He has never forgotten where he came from. And Brucey Boudreau last couple of weeks telling us again how good those leagues are and what people don't appreciate about it. And third, what I think you're getting here today from these two kids is that I call them kids because I'm so old. The passion that these kids have for playing the game for the right reason, for the love of the game, because believe me, playing in the ECHL, you don't get rich. No, you don't. And, uh, and I call them kids too, because one of them is my kid. But <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, yes. Um, you know, they love the game. They love playing and, you know, they, they get to kind of live vicariously like NHLers, you know, kind of, I mean, it's, a, it's quite a bit different, the buses and bus trips and all that, but they're still playing at the professional level. And, to win a championship in the East Coast League for these guys is like winning a Stanley Cup. And, uh, you know, so they keep playing. They keep they want to keep playing. And I, I think more so Justin rather than Jesse because he, Justin's only 31. He might be still holding out a little bit of hope that maybe the American League might be something he might get for a few years or perhaps, you know, get an opportunity to, to play on a fourth line on an NHL team. And, you know, that, that's why he keeps playing. And, and uh, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen down the road for these guys. But they love the game and uh, they just keep on playing. Well, we heard Daddy tell us two weeks ago that he was playing at 38, still hold, holding out hope that there may be a chance that somebody could pick him up for just that last run. So anyway, we've got... So you're uh, saying there's a chance. But yeah, I'm saying there's... You know what? As long as he can put skates on his feet and step onto the ice, there's always a chance. Just ask one of the six-year-olds that I play with every Thursday night. Every guy still thinks they're watching for them, okay? All the guys from Arkham are trying to emulate the, the stamp goals goal last night. There's five stammers playing last night. So anyway, without further ado, let's tune in and listen to the real pros tell us how it really happens, okay? Back to you guys shortly. Squid, keeping with our theme, covering all hockey, we have a couple of guests today. One in particular you may be familiar with, and I'm referring to your son, Justin, who's joined by another longtime pro, Jesse Schultz. 
How are we doing, guys? Doing well. Really good. Good. So you got now any now you guys I, I I saw that you're seasoned in ECHL. You guys are in Cincinnati now, Jesse. You're not. You're in Nashville. Uh, Knoxville. Knoxville, and um, you um, I, I see your season scheduled to start December the fourth, but. Is that kind of uh, still going to hold true? Do you think there's some room this thing may change again? Yeah, I think uh, I think right now it's day to day. I mean, uh, you know, you, you look at stuff online or on TV, and some days are good, some days are bad. So I think, uh, yeah, we just got to take it take it day by day. I think uh, Justin might know a little bit more, but I think there's another date in January that they can also push it back to. So still got a couple uh, three months to go. So hopefully things continue getting a little bit better and we, and we end up playing. Well, Justin, you said you guys are skating a little bit and how's the training and stuff like that going for you guys? There's, it's a little bit of leeway for you to get some stuff done. Yeah, they've been, um, I mean, it's been kind of pretty standard compared to the last couple of summers uh, with the rinks here and uh, being able to work out and stuff like that. It's, I mean, basically almost normal. Um, I mean, obviously with everything <laughs> else done, it's uh, as normal as it can be, but um yeah, they're like Jesse said. There's a few dates that um, you know they've been looking at different contingency plans, and it's I mean day to day, week to week down here, and you see all the other sports kind of starting up, college football, the NFL, um, which is all good signs um, for hockey. And then uh, recently, they've been talking about college basketball starting up um, at the end of November. So I know they're taking it day by day, and I mean, same with us. And hopefully, things just keep moving in the right direction. So now, uh, Jess, you've got a new role this year. You're going to be, or is this your second year uh, as an assistant coach? This, you're just, you're getting into the coaching end of it, I think now, aren't you? And is that something you're looking for? And, and Jess, you can jump in and answer this one too, maybe somewhere down the road. But uh, Jess, this is kind of for you, or uh, Justin, this is for you, your new kind of uh, roles to be in the coaching end? Um, yeah, I think ultimately when you spend a lot of time playing in general, um, in any league, um, it's kind of what you know, what you love and what you like to do. And, uh, for most people, regardless of the career, when you kind of find that, uh, that path, it's something that you want to do for the rest of your life. Um, if you're fortunate enough and, uh, it was just an opportunity just to kind of see a little more of the ins and outs, um, behind hockey, um, in the coaching and the, uh, all the stuff that goes with it, the travel, um, you know, the, the picking of teams and how they kind of go about signing guys and salary caps and stuff like that. And just understanding in a deeper sense that you normally wouldn't just playing, I guess. Jesse, what about you? Have you got any thoughts? I mean, you're a 17 year pro, I believe. And, uh, is there any thoughts somewhere to be behind the bench at some point? Yeah, I, I think I'd like to stay in the game somehow. I think uh, that's one of the reasons I keep playing. I don't really know what I want to do after, so I just try to keep playing as long as I can. But yeah, I think it, you spend so much time playing it. It's really the only thing I've known my whole life since I was a young kid. So, um, you know, it's it probably I'm not going to be able to do anything really any better. So I think, uh, you know, using that expertise I've, I've gained playing so long, I think it, it would be, uh, you know, kind of stupid not to stay in the game in some fashion. So now, Rick, we're gonna, I promise we're going to get you in this conversation That's at some you, point. You're trying to break Gordy Howell's record for the most games <laughs> or what? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just, this, this pandemic might end, end my career. I don't know. I hope I'm not going out this way, though. That's for sure. <laughs> well, now, boys, I'd like you guys to discuss your path to the pros. But uh, and Justin, let's start with you. I mean, like, like, obviously, the obvious questions coming up is, how is life – for you growing up under the wings of a famous hockey player as a dad? 
Um, I mean, honestly, I didn't really yeah. even notice it until I was probably about 13, 14 years old. I mean, obviously growing up in South Carolina and then moving out east and still being young and just kind of getting into competitive hockey, I never really put much weight into it and nor did anybody down in South Carolina really even know who he was anyway, other than like the coach. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so that never really kind of dawned on me until Toronto, which I mean, obviously playing in Toronto, growing up there. I mean, if your dad did anything with hockey, not even close to the achievements that um, my dad got, you know, you're going to hear about it. And, uh, you know, I, honestly, I never really put a lot of pressure on myself. I mean, we were different players from when I was growing up to what he was. And that's kind of what I clung to and, kind of thought of myself and I never really put myself in that fashion and then you know obviously it got a little more intense going to college and being drafted and then the comparisons started coming out and all yeah. that uh business but I mean even then um I kind of knew I was a different player and I mean I was graced with a, a lot more size and stuff so I kind of <laughs> came a different way so um it, from that standpoint I never really had much pressure on myself comparison wise yeah. And just, I think one oh, okay. time I, 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 I told him, I said, I wish I had your size and I could go back in time and beat the hell out of all those guys that beat the shit out of me when I was playing. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jesse, you've got some uh, hockey background in your family or spread through your family too. How did that, uh, that have any impact on you? As a kid? Yeah. I mean, uh, my, uh, you know, I, my dad obviously never played at, uh, at any high level, but my, my cousin played, uh, in the NHL, he yeah. played over a thousand games. So played Minnesota, Edmonton, Columbus, and then ended in Philly. So we, uh, we grew up, we played together all the way until I think, uh, about Pee Wee or Bantam until we, uh, you know, went away to play in a bigger center. So yeah, it was, uh, we always had pretty good teams growing up. It was, uh, it was pretty neat to, to, you know, grow up playing with him. We, we played a year and a half together in, in Prince Albert in the Western Hockey League. So that was really neat. Now, Justin, uh, you played on a pretty good minor team with the Toronto Marlboros. And uh, one of the players in there may be a little bit familiar to some Leaf fans by the name of uh, John Tavares. Talk about some of those years. I mean, certainly then uh, wearing that blue and white must have been pretty special for you, but also the attention that team got. Yeah, it was... Um... Again, I wasn't really prepared or really knew what the GTHL was or anything. Like I played in Oakville for one year and kind of got a taste of how kind of, you know, crazy it is up there for hockey and the paths that you can take and stuff. Um, but I never really realized until I did transfer to the Marlies. Um, and then slowly over uh, two years, we kind of built, formed, uh, you know, did everything we could to kind of get all the players that we wanted uh, together and, yeah, looking back, and I still have people that ask, uh, you know, they're like, oh, who was on that team again? And then, you know, you rattle off eight, ten names that all played in the NHL or the AHL, OHL. Like, it was just, you know, there's probably never going to be a team like it again just because of how kind of diverse the skill level is now across the country and the world. Um, but back then, it was just, you know, we were able to kind of get every everybody on the same page and all commit to the same team. And, you know, I don't even think I realized how good we were and the players were on that team when I was that age until I was, you know, 18, 19 and seeing, you know, four or five of my teammates playing in the NHL at that age. So now let's get the old man's uh, thoughts on this. Like what was it like sitting in the stands watching him at that level progress with these kids? 
Well, it, it was actually a lot of fun um, because they didn't lose. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think the three years that they played, well, he was there for four. Johnny was with them for, for the last three of his four. And I think in three years they lost one game, I believe, and one or two at the most. They won, you know, the OHL Cup as minor midgets. I mean, they just dominated the GTHL each and every year. And uh, it was it was really fun to watch. It was uh, – I really enjoyed it as a parent. Uh, you know, I, it's not – and the good thing is, is I kind of had a good mindset watching my son play and thinking – not thinking about NHL or any grand things in the future. I just – I loved watching the way they played when they were that age. And it was a lot of fun for me. So – you know, I wasn't thinking 10 years down the road or, or anything like that of what's going to happen. I was just, I was enjoying what I was seeing. You know, Sam Gagne, Johnny, Justin, uh, Kima Lou. I mean, you know, I, I can't even remember. Cody Golubev. Uh, I mean, they just had a great team. The coaches were fantastic. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. So, uh, now, Jesse, Jesse, you grew up playing in the WHA, and after a good junior career, you got passed over a couple of times in, in the draft, but you ended up signing as a free agent with Vancouver. Then uh, you didn't make the Manitoba Moose. How did that, how was your mindset going through all of that, like the frustrations, especially so how, how hard you worked to get there? Yeah, I never really, uh, you know, it never really bothered me too much not to get drafted, to be honest. I, I mm -hmm. feel like I kind of was a late bloomer in that way. I never really, um, you know, put up numbers in junior until, you know, 19, 20 year old. So I, I didn't ex really expect to get drafted, but I knew, uh, you know, I was getting better. So that was, that was good. And I was just trying to get my foot in the door somehow. So, uh, you know, signing that, the contract after my 20 year old year uh, to turn pro was, was a big step. And then obviously, uh, you know, another big step to, to go to the AHL. I, I spent a year in the, in the East coast hockey league when I was 21. And then uh, first year in the American league was, I think the was two lockouts ago. I think that was oh four oh five. So that was a, that was an interesting year to, to have for my first year. It was, it was pretty, pretty amazing to see some of the guys that were down in the American league that year. So it was a fun year. But I gotta, I gotta hand it to you. Pretty amazing when you start talking about decades instead of years. Right? <laughs> a thousand pro games are over a thousand now, and uh, I think that's pretty damn impressive. That's awesome. Well, you know, now just here, you know, you mentioned two thousand and five. Now here's where I got to give you your kudos as a professional hockey player, as guys can learn from. Two thousand five, two thousand six. You had a big breakthrough with Manitoba and entertainment scoring. Your coach gets elevated the next year, Alan Vignon, gets moved up to the big job at the big club in Vancouver. You look like you're odds-on favorite to make the team, but it doesn't turn out that way. And you end up getting traded to Atlanta, and you don't even get a sniff there, and you end up playing in the Mariners with the Bull, or the Wolves, but you end up winning a Calder Cup. Take us through that whole period. I mean, were you frustrated? Or you just thought, just got to keep plugging away, and somebody will notice at some point? Yeah, I think so. I think that was part of it. I, I knew, uh, you know, having uh, Elaine Vigneault, when he moved up there to Vancouver, I had, I had him in Van or in Manitoba, like he said. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I think he, he was hoping I was going to be able to make the jump and, uh, and make the team that year. I, you know, I, I 
don't have anyone to blame though. That was, you know, I just didn't play well enough. I didn't have a good enough camp. So, um, then going back to Manitoba that year, I probably had, I think I had the, my worst season, uh, statistically, uh, in my five years in the American league that year. And then I was, uh, traded, I think that off season to Chicago. So yeah, it was a, it was a fresh start going to Chicago and, uh, you know, Atlanta wasn't very good at, at the time. So, you know, you always think you're going to get kind of a look up there, but, we had a ton of good players in Chicago too and, and ended up winning the Calder Cup. So there was, a, you know, a few guys that I was behind kind of in the pecking order to get a call up. But going on the, the Calder Cup run was amazing. Well, I'll have to call my buddy John Anderson and <laughs> give him heck for not calling me up. <laughs> I, love, I love playing for Johnny. He, he only had two rules. He said uh, no one-touch passing and no uh, backhand flip passes or something was his two rules. Pretty much everything else was like, oh, so. <laughs> yeah, they, well, now, Justin, you chose the college route while a lot of your teammates on that Mark team uh, and so on, they, they, you know, they went to the OHL and they went through the draft and all that stuff. Just, just walk us through that decision you had to make to go college. And did the old man have any say in that or did you look to him for some direction? No. <laughs> no, he never, um, he never uh, really – weighed in too much you know obviously he helped me explore both options I don't know if it was growing up in the U.S. Um, you know as a kid and maybe and liking you know the university the kind of lifestyle and what it can give yeah. to you after I don't know if it was I wasn't confident in myself so I wanted a backup plan if hockey didn't work out uh, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. Um, being American too, I was able to play at that under uh, mm -hmm. 17 and 18 program. Yeah, the national program, the U.S. national program. Yeah. Oh, I think that kind of – that right there really, um, I think, paved the way for me to go to college, having the ability to do that and play against colleges and the exposure you get from that, being able to go to the U-17s, the U-18s, um, and just the ability to, if that didn't work out after that, I could still go back to the OHL, and I, that was always in my mind. So it never really closed the door. It left both open. Um, whereas, like, if I wanted to go to college and I didn't have that opportunity, I would have had to play Tier 2 somewhere, and I just didn't know if I wanted to do that for two full years waiting for college. So that really, I think, kind of helped me out that way. Now, maybe uh, your dad you tells me, you. want me to tell you exactly how it went down, Mike? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and while you're on it, talk about the draft also with Berkey. Okay. So what happened, and I, I give him a lot of credit. Uh, at 16 years old, I mean, you're young, you know, impressionist. Like, we went to Sudbury after he was drafted by Sudbury. And, and, and they treated him very well. They treated us very well. Mm -hmm. The U.S. program wanted them as well. And we sat down and he said, he said, Dad, you know, I don't know. He says, the OHL, 16-year-olds, unless you're a real superstar, you don't get to play a whole lot. I think I got a better chance of playing more at the U.S. program. And they got a great off-ice uh, program there. And that's why he decided to go there. It was his thinking and uh, forward thinking, I guess. As, but at 16, for, for a kid to think like that, I, I thought that was pretty impressive. And now, and of course, then he comes along, the draft comes along, and Berkey takes him in Anaheim. Well, Berkey takes him and... Loves the big guys. So, Justin, yeah. you're, you're right on his scope there, that's for sure. Well, the funny thing was, the draft was in Columbus. 
night here and was it, I believe Rick Kern was your agent at the time, correct? Yeah. And Rick told him, don't go to the draft. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. The only thing is here, going into the draft, I was not on any of the North American scouting reports. I was okay. nowhere on there. And then we went to the U18s, which is in April, so mm -hmm. a month and a half before the – and I had probably the best – yeah, the best seven games of my career up to this point over an international stage with every European scout over there and everything. And there wasn't a new central scouting report after the year-end ones from the major junior things. So we were still going off the old Yeah, but yeah I got you. The data, I got you. Okay, but I, I had a real good feeling that he was going to get drafted. And I, I thought maybe third round – you know, second, possibly sec late second, maybe if, if he was lucky. Um, and I took him down to Miami for what the heck could we go there for? I can't even remember now. Orientation or something? No, my unofficial visit. Yeah. So, and I really wanted us to take our, you know, suits and go to Columbus for the draft. And to this day, I'm still disappointed that we didn't because he ended up going 92nd overall. And then we, he would have had a chance to go down and meet everybody at Anaheim's table. And uh, I, I just think that would have been one hell of an experience for him uh, to go through that. And, uh, you know, but Rick Kern was adamant about not going, that he didn't want him to be disappointed. But I had a different feeling, and I don't know why. I guess probably it was dad. That's why. Well, that, but, but he, he started really coming on the, the, the last part of that season with the U S program mm -hmm. his second year. And then he did have a fantastic tournament in the U 18s. And I was there, I watched it. I, I was in Europe to watch it. And uh, I believe you were, I think second on your team in points for that tournament. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I just had a real good yeah. feeling and I, to this day, I'm still a little bit disappointed because I think for him, that would have been one heck of an experience. So, guys, uh, Justin and uh, Jess, let's, let's uh, get through your first camp. So, you guys, your mindset, again, I mean, that's my favorite word. Your mindset going into your first camp, your expectations, maybe the disappointments, surprises that you saw uh, on your first game. Let's start with you, Jesse, because and, and Justin, we'll come back to you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely an eye-opener going to your first camp. Yeah you watch these guys on TV and then, uh, you know, next thing you know, you're in the, you're in the room with them, skating with them. So obviously pretty nervous. Um, and it, it really goes by pretty quick to be honest. And then, uh, you know, you're, you're either, you're actually probably sent down or, or you make the team, but, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, I was definitely nervous, but, uh, they're fun. They're, they're you try to learn as much as you can and, and try to, try to learn what it's like to be a, to be a real pro and learn from the best in the game. Well, what did, like, was there, what surprises, like, were the guys way better than you thought they were? Were they as you expected they'd be? Or like the intensity, was it as you would expect or even more intense? Yeah. I think you just realize how hard the guys work and, you know, off ice, on ice practice habits. They're just, uh, they do everything hard and, uh, you know, all the time. So I think that's, that's something that, uh, you know, you, you'll find that, it, you know, minus the, the high end guys on teams, 
you know, the bottom end guys and maybe the top end American League guys, there isn't a huge difference, I don't think. Um, you know, it's just that that maybe a little intangible or, you know, work ethic or, or anything that, that sets those guys apart. So I think that's what you'll notice those guys up there do it uh, maybe a little bit more consistently. And Justin, what about you? Um, I think I was a little – I mean, I guess coming from college, um, so my first camp wasn't until I was 22 years old. Um, whereas like, you know, a lot of guys that are drafted at 18, 19 or in major junior, mm-hmm. they're allowed to go to camps at starting at 18. So I think maybe I was a little older, so I wasn't as kind of overwhelmed, but to say I wasn't nervous, obviously I was, um, but just, yeah, I guess kind of what Jesse said, you know, those high end guys that you, you know, you see in the all-star games and you see, you know, on the power plays and everything like that, like there's, you see how hard they work and how, you know, much effort they put into even the smallest little details. Um, and I think also though, it kind of gives you a, a lot of motivation to kind of see the lifestyle. Um, you know, you, you get the treatment um, of being there, the, the meals, the yeah. travel, uh, just the overall treatment from the staff and the hotels and everything. It's just, you know, it gives you that little bit of a taste where you're like, Oh man, like this would be <laughs> one hell of a lifestyle, not to mention the money you make, but just everything that comes with it. And I think, um, I think Jesse, we were talking about it when you were here a little while ago, the interview that um, Winnipeg's coach had. Um, I forget who. Yeah, but who was he talking about? Do you remember the name? I don't know. Oh, and what? On like Overdrive or? No, no, no. uh, Maurice had an interview after their game and he was talking about a guy on their fourth line. Oh, uh... Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. So he came from the ECHL. And, and, yeah, and he made the uh, yeah. team. Yes. And that's what, like, Jesse was talking about is, like, you realize from the third, fourth line of the NHL to everybody else is not that big of a gap. And it gives guys a lot of motivation if you're down, but it also gives guys that are up that much more incentive to stick because they know how close – the gap is between them and the guys right behind them. And, you know, this kid didn't get an opportunity. He wasn't a first or second round pick and he just worked his ass off for so many years that he finally got that opportunity. And I mean, obviously you have to take the opportunity and run with it. And obviously he did. He was a huge player for them in the uh, playoffs. Now, Jesse, I, uh, I was going to ask Jesse something. Oh, go ahead. Go. Everything where, where he's been, um, Obviously, what's it like? You guys have played together for a few years now. And uh, do the guys call you Suitcase by any chance? Is that your nickname? <laughs> Not yet. No. <laughs> I, I've, I've been in – It might be, it might be now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be. I've, I, have, I have been a few places. So, yeah, I probably – well, Jesse, here's how about this? Let, let's let's let, let's let's put it more delicately. We want to this. We I, I mean this with the utmost respect and actually admiration. We're calling you the modern version of last week's guest we had on Bruce Boudreau, who played I think in every league in existence in North America and led base every team he played on in scoring. And you played in eleven different leagues throughout North America and Europe. So for the listeners. First off, what was your favorite league? I mean, the AHL, I guess, would be the closest one. So, I mean, aside from the obvious, what was your favorite league? And what was the difference between, say, European and North American pros? Uh, I, I really liked uh, playing in Germany. I, I uh, played in the DL and the DL2. Um, 
just the I, I think the, the just the fan experience. It's kind of like a kind of like a soccer match where you, where you got everyone just standing. You got uh, two ends of the ice where fans don't sit the whole game and they're chanting and they got flags and banners they're waving and it's just kind of a kind of a neat experience. And then uh, you know after the game you'll if you win you'll kind of do a skate around or all line up and do a little salute to the fans, which which I think is kind of neat. So I, w- I would probably say. Germany was probably my one of my favorite places just living there it's a great country and uh you know uh played uh played in Italy was fun too living in the mountains was was neat and a little ski town so yeah I've been uh I've been a few different places for sure well now what I'll get Sean you know what I was gonna say that just like Toronto in the 80s they were all standing up except a lot of them were wearing brown paper bags over there (laughs) (laughs) and throwing this and throwing the sweaters on the ice yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, now, one of the guy, one of the places you played, you played in Sheffield in England. Yeah. And of all places, now uh, when I followed the Leafs for all eighty-nine games in two thousand eighteen, nineteen, I met a family of three from Sheffield wearing their sweaters at the beginning of the year. I met a guy at the end of the year from Sheffield. And by the way, that family was over watching Liam Kirk play for the Peterborough Peets. And yeah, I played Sunday with Kirk that year a little bit. There you go. And. Yeah. This guy, Elliot Hall, was a big, big hockey fan. He's flown over here for a number of Toronto games. I met him in Boston when I was traveling. Anyway, sent him a note to see if there's any stories on Jesse that he had from Sheffield. But the number of National Hockey League players that went through Sheffield, as an example, and that league, and he talked about the Euro tournament, maybe touch on that about the level of play that is actually really over there. And some of your, your experience in Sheffield, and I got a story for you to relate to us that he told us about you. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's surprising. I don't think it. Uh, I actually think many years ago, guys were going over there and making actually really, really good money. Um, but you, you don't really think of it as uh, you know, a, a higher end European league. But you're right. There, there are a lot of guys that go over that have played in the NHL. Maybe you know, lower end guys, but at the end of their career, they might go over and want to travel Europe. And and it's uh, it's uh you know, it's, it's a pretty good league. It, it used to be more of a, a fighter league. A lot, got a lot used to be a lot of fighter guys, but there's a, there's some skilled guys. And I think it's uh it's really cool. Sheffield's a, a, a nice town. They get really good fan support. Uh, it was a little tough uh, driving on the other, you know, other side of the car and other side of the road. That was a little interesting to, at first, I don't think I drove for the first probably two or three months that I was over there. I was just too scared to get in the car. Well, what, Elliot told me a story about uh, you had the guys over at night. You guys were watching a game or doing something or playing cards, and the guys left. And I, I think you were on the first floor of your flat, and one of the guys had to climb through the window to get his keys. I mean, you said to him, "Why didn't you just knock on the door?" And he said, "I didn't want to disturb you. You're watching TV." Yeah, that was my that was my roommate. Uh, yeah, he was. It was it was interesting living with him. I won't name who it, who it was. I can maybe tell you off off camera, but he. Uh, he was coming home late quite often. And yeah, that's what I said to him. I just, we were on the first floor. I said, just knock on my window and I'll let you in. But he wanted to rather crawl through the window. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I was going to say to you also, the other thing is, is that, you know, now like our friend, Mr. Boudreau, uh, you're very much like him. And the fact that you won an ECHL MVP and scoring championship in 2018-19, 37 years old. Bruce's last couple of years had 100-point seasons his last three years before he started coaching, and you're basically online to be doing the same type of thing. I asked Bruce this question, I'm going to ask you, but did you ever think, and, and Justin, I want you to answer this one too, that at some point 
the show is just not for you. Uh, even though you're never going to give up, but just make best of what you have and just appreciate what you'd be given the chance to play in the leagues you were. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried every year that I start, start playing that I'll get out there and just won't know what to do and then won't have it. So, um, you know, sometimes you start slow and then you <clears throat> kind of comes to you after. And, uh, you know, I think that's, I've been, fortunate to uh to keep playing at at a you know a higher level and uh you know I think it just uh playing for so long and and being able to think the game I think has has helped me a lot obviously don't can't skate with a lot of these these younger kids now but being able to think the game I think goes a long way and really helps me to keep uh producing Justin what about you um yeah I mean I guess for me too it's you know the chase for that elusive championship um you know in college we lose the national championship game uh, obviously devastating fashion um and then in my pro career i think i've made the playoffs every single year i'm basically yeah and you know i've been to conference finals i've been to you know second first every round and just never had that you know that year where everything clicked with the team. And I think that's kind of part of the reason because I would never be able to, you know, forgive myself if I retire and the next year, you know, Cincinnati goes on a run and wins the championship. Um, and then I think also just, yeah, I guess, you know, every year, like Jesse said, you start out and, you know, you go a game or two without a point or without scoring and you're like, Oh, this might be the year where it's just not clicking. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, a little nerve wracking, especially how young every league's gone uh, nowadays, even from when I first started and now it's the average age is just like cut in half almost from where it was when I first kind of got into the league. And um, I guess you, you try not to look at that and you try to just, you know, keep doing what you do and what you got you there and what's keeping you around. Well, on that, on you're, that making, you're making the old guy feel bad here, Justin, you know, like, Talking about how young the league's got. <laughs> hey, I've, I've gone, I've, I've watched all their games, and uh, these two actually play together on the same line for the most part. And uh, Jesse can still, I, I know he said he can't skate with the young kids, and I understand what he means, but he gets around pretty damn good for 37 years old, I can tell you. Well, somebody, somebody must have thought so. I don't think his dad is the only vote for MVP in the scoring championship. So. <laughs> something did, something worked well there. Um, so for you, both of you guys, just on that line that you've just uh, touching on, Justin, is both you guys, and we've, we've had this conversation with guys who played in the minors and played in the lower levels, just how good, like what the guy, like, and again, I, we referenced Bruce Burdell because he was an NHL coach. I mean, he sends guys down. He says the look in their face is such disappointment, but he looks at these guys and he says to them, you have no idea how good these players are down here. Like, you're going to a very good league. And so don't put your head down. Go down there and work your tail off if you want to shot because these guys are good players. Just how good are those guys in the ECHL? And the, well, we know the AHL guys are good, but the ECHL is an example. Justin, you uh, go first. I mean, I, I, I won't lie. I thought the same thing. I think every single kid that has ever played hockey thinks the same. Like, you know, you see two leagues down, you're like, oh, I, I don't belong there. I should never be there. And, it, you know, I, I don't know if it's – how society's gone a little bit and the kind of entitlement that's um, I guess pushed to the forefront when it comes to athletics and stuff. But 
Um, it's, you know, I don't think they really know until they get down here. And the first game, it's like they're just overwhelmed. And you're like, man, like, yeah, what do you think? Like, people aren't down here just playing, you know, beer league hockey, just having fun. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's a professional league and guys want to move up or some guys, this is their career down here. And um, I thought the same thing, though, um, until you actually experience it and see how good some of these players are. I mean, it's the same thing as the AHL to NHL where we said, you know, the top guys in the AHL are just as good as the bottom guys in the NHL. It's the same thing here. You know, the top line in the ECHL could play on any AHL team. It's just either age opportunity draft. Like, I mean, there's a lot of things that go with it, but talent and skill wise, that's definitely not the separating factor. Yeah, one one thing on that too is that like I mean I coached in South Carolina in the ECHL in the nineties, ninety-three to ninety-eight as a matter of fact. And the difference now that I see is is unbelievable. Like actually teams are signing when they sign some of their draft picks, they're sending them directly to the ECHL because they want them playing. And uh, I mean it's almost like a, a three-tier system now they've gone through where as when I was coaching, it was like, you know, I might've had two guys under contract if, if I was lucky and the rest of the guys I had to go kind of go find myself. Now it's a little bit different. You see a lot of guys uh, that are signed being sent down there, especially the young guys for their first year. Well, we had 12 yeah. two years ago that were contracted with Rochester and Buffalo. Jesse, what about your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, I just uh, just going off what Rick said there. I think even you know, like NHL teams are looking at uh, the ECHL as, as a developmental league now, and and as uh, Justin said, when we had the twelve guys down there, I mean, I know when I started, th there was no developmental coaches anywhere to be. I never saw one, and now we got guys coming down once a month, you know, into the East Coast Hockey League because they're we have guys down there that they want to see and they want to develop and they think they have a future in the organization. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it gets better every year. I think it's just a, a matter of, uh, you know, NHL only has a certain amount of spots, AHL has a certain amount of spots. There's a lot of good players. So guys are going to get pushed down. So I think it's just important that, you know, when, when guys get sent down there, they don't, you know, hold their head down and, you know, it might be a year or two that you're down there. You use it to get better. And, uh, you know, if you're good enough, you'll eventually get up there, and it's and can't can't look at it as a you know a, a step back in your in your development at all. Well, for all three of you here, this this question can apply. Uh, some of the things that have happened in ECHL, uh, just some of the bizarre things you saw over the years, even come from management, some players going out. I mean, everybody knows that you know the guys aren't exactly making tons of money down there, so everybody is you know very much on budgets and so on. But some of the crazier things, and maybe Rick, you started off as a coach, some of the things you saw coming from the, the big leagues and coaching at that level, some of the differences and attitudes maybe and just stuff that goes on. Uh, my biggest take from it when I started was, first of all, I was in Charleston, South Carolina, so I could make as many mistakes coaching as I wanted to because people didn't know a thing about <laughs> hockey. Okay, So that was great. We, we you know, we, I, I remember – Jerry Zucker, our owner, uh, God rest his soul, he passed away. But um, I was in my office and we were playing Columbus Inferno, I think they were called at the time, uh, from 
Columbus, Ohio. The Chill? Or not, not Inferno. What were they called? Columbus the Chill. The Columbus Chill. Whatever. Yeah, the Chill. You're right. Yeah. Anyway, we're, we're, we're losing the game. And here's this billionaire uh, who comes in, walks in my office, and he says, Rick, he said, what's wrong? I said, what do you mean, what's wrong? Like, it, was, you know, it wasn't a blowout or anything. He goes, well, they seem to be stroking a lot better than you guys are. I don't know what it is, but, and I'm going, stroking? Like, so he had no idea what the hell hockey was. And that was his analogy of, I guess, they're skating better than we were at the, uh, in the period. So anyway, it was, there, there's a, a ton of funny things that I could get into, but uh, I'd rather hear this one. I'd give rather hear what these guys have to say. Well, boys, you go and then you give us one. Okay, boys, give us one of your funniest stories from the lady you found kind of humorous. Um, I'd probably say I have two from my first year. Um, the one is um, it was so that was probably 2010, 11-ish um, when uh, like Clemenson and I think Theodore were in Florida and they both got hurt the same game. So both of our goalies got called up. Um, and so we had practice the next day and we're like looking around the room. We're like, Hmm, hey, this is, and we, there was nobody else that, and I, it was like my second month of pro hockey and we go out for practice at our practice rink, which isn't the best place in the world. And our radio guy and our equipment manager are the two goalies out there. It's <laughs> like, what is happening right now? Like this is pro hockey. Like, and our, our equipment guy couldn't even go down because the gear, he was wearing one of our goalies old gear and it was so big. He literally couldn't go down at all. So he just stood there like Goldberg from the mighty ducks and just got hit with pucks for an hour. <laughs> um, and I think there was another one same year. We were on the bus going to Chicago and, and uh, um, David game, and we're like on the bus and we're just kind of looking around. We had a ton of injuries, call-ups. There was people sick, whatever. We're looking around. We have like five forwards and four defensemen on the bus. And we're like, ooh, like, and we play that night. And the coach is up there just going through like a Rolodex of players, calling guys that are working full-time in Chicago, actual jobs, and asking if they can come play tonight. And we ended up, I had a guy from college that worked in Chicago, hadn't played in like, six months or like had his equipment on in six months and we just pulled like four guys out of like an accounting firm and a financial thing and we ended up winning the game like three two and these guys were literally like puking in between periods whatever and it was that was like this is something i will definitely not forget that's pretty well how about you jesse can you top those two <laughs> no probably not but i'm glad Viver told the first story because he made me think of one i didn't really have one but it was my uh first year um First year pro, I was in uh, ECHL in uh, with the Columbia Inferno, and we were playing the PD Pride, and uh, we had a, only had one goalie. I don't know where our other goalie was, but we had to bring along our uh, uh, the, the ticket guy from the office, and I don't even know if he was actually a goalie or not. He just dressed as a goalie, and, and our starter that night played about a period and a half or two periods, and we were up by probably six goals, and he cramped up. And he had to leave the game. So our, uh, the ticket guy had to come out and play goal for the third period. And, and they, they, they got within one goal, but they were shooting it from 
everywhere on the ice on the other end and guy the centerman was shooting it off the face off trying to score this guy was going out behind the net trying to play the puck and stuff and it was pretty funny but we uh we got out of there with a win but we just barely did isn't it great just be a coach for a second not a father how about that which i know you can because i tease you all the time about that isn't it great listening to these two speak to life in the minors and just the enthusiasm they have you just gotta love the fact that these guys make no excuses hold no bitterness towards any of the organizations or any jealousies towards anybody else's success. If anything, they use it as an inspiration to try and help themselves move forward. And it's almost just like uh, minor youth hockey. It's the foundation of hockey to begin with, but for the professional levels, these levels are the sort of professional grassroots levels that these guys are experiencing, but they're just embracing it. Like, you just got to love this. I, yeah. I mean, uh, and as a coach, you love to see that. Uh, I know Matt Thomas, our coach, he loves these guys. And they go out every night and they give everything they have. And, and keep in mind that these guys play three games and three nights a lot on weekends. And they're, and they're busing from city to city. I can remember a few years ago, um, they played on a Friday night, I believe, in Kalamazoo. And then they had to play Saturday night, Sunday afternoon in Brampton. And they only had 11 or uh, nine forwards for the first game. And then Rochester sent three forwards to Brampton to meet them. And uh, then they ended up winning the two games in Brampton. But uh, they go through a lot. But like you said, they, they're not complaining. They're, they're happy where they are. They're happy to play the, the, the game they love. And I mean, as a coach, um, and as a fan, I, I think that's fantastic. And, and I think they touched on it too, was the fact that now there's a lot more guys that are being signed and sent to the ECHL to get ready for the American League and hopefully eventually the National League. And they're embracing that and they're helping these guys. So um, I, I couldn't help but marvel at you know, how, how good they are as far as players and, and per people and, uh, and how they help their teammates. Well, think about this, because as the league's getting younger and younger, there's more and more, there's not, not a lacking of players coming to play professional hockey. So what this is doing is this is, this is cramping up all the leagues, but it's also putting pressure on guys to perform or you're going to lose your job because there's a lot of guys that are in their early 30s that still have lots left to give. You want those experienced guys that can help a, a, on a fourth line or a third line with a contending team come playoff time. Yet all these kids are being pushed too. So the competition is getting more intense as we move along. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I don't think the competition in any of the pro leagues has been as high as it is now. All these young guys, 18, 19, 20 years old coming out. I mean, and they're good. I mean, they're good hockey players. They're the yes. top players in junior hockey. And, uh, you know, every year there's teams that are adding one or two guys that just came out of junior that are playing regular. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think the competition has ever been higher than it is right now in any of the professional leagues. Well, just on that note alone, I guess we've got to step right into who we always talk about, our Maple Leafs, and speaking about additions – the talk centering all over social media and everywhere, all 146 GMs of the Toronto Maple Leafs on Twitter <laughs> have got it figured out and have worked out all these scenarios for 
Cal Dubas to get Alex Petrangelo into a Leaf uniform. As much as we'd love to have that all happen, you have to be realistic at some point and step back and, and think about what this is really going to take. What people don't seem to understand, I was speaking to a GM, NHL GM earlier this week, and what people don't understand is that it's just not a simple process of subtraction to get addition, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You're not going to, like, everybody's saying you can get rid of, uh, you know, you got rid of Kapanen already, you get rid of Johansson, you get rid of Kerfoot, you get rid of Nylander. It's just not that easy because the other team is going to be in the same boat as the Leafs. They've got to, they've got to make movements too. I mean, there's teams out there, uh, you know, you get the, the, the teams like, Florida, LA, Ottawa, Detroit, Buffalo. Yeah, they all have room, but they're all have cap room for a reason because they're bad. So yeah. when you're going to get back, you're not going to get much back. And the thing is, is you're not going to give these players away. So the idea is with everybody getting crunched on cap space, it's very difficult to do. Yeah, this is going to be probably one of the most unique free agent years I think that we've ever seen. And that, as you say, there's a lot of good free agents out there. Uh, Bobby Ryan, I think, was put on waivers to be bought out today. Yeah. Uh, there's another guy. But uh, the problem is, is, you know, like there's probably only five, six teams in, in the entire league that can afford to sign any of these guys because nobody else has cap room. And, uh, you know, unless you're going to unload dollar for dollar – it's pretty tough to just go out and sign free agents because you got to give something up and, you know, they've cleared some cap space, but there's a whole lot more to clear before they're going to be able to go out and sign a guy like Petrangelo or Krug or anybody that they, they think they, they need to sign. So it's quite possible that we might see pretty much the same defense without CC and, and Barry and Lilligren and these young guys coming in and, and taking uh, you know, having to play uh, on, on a regular basis. Well, the, the other point to this is I mean, on, on two fronts. If you're a contending team like Columbus that does have, or Colorado, they do have room to, to add players. But Colorado's you know, is going to have roughly $22 million in cap space, but they've still got to sign nine players. So the idea is, I mean, if the Leafs gave them one of their, you know, more paid guys, let's use Nylander for a name, they, they trade an Nylander, you do have to get equal value back. And equal value back it's not going to do any good because if you're giving up $7 million, you got to take back five as an example, what kind of, that gives you $2 million that can let you sign a fourth line player. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you're going to get draft picks back, everybody talks about what's your draft pick going to be. If that team is a top echelon team, it's going to be a 25th to 32nd pick with uh, Seattle joining in the next year. So what, what is that going to bring back to you? I mean, that's just suicide for a general manager. And a, and a team in the bottom echelon of the league to make a move to sign a player that's seven or $8 million, they may do that to sell some tickets. But as been pointed out to me, if they're going to make a move like that, if their 25th place team say, will this player get us into the playoffs? And if the answer is no, it's only going to move the needle a couple of spots, then the obvious answer back would be, you know what? Why are, we, why are we blowing our money now? Let's wait. Let's accumulate draft picks, bring some young kids in, and when we need to make that push, we've got good cash available to make some big moves. So you're not going to get anything back from these guys. Yeah, I I kind of agree with that. The only problem is we're in Toronto. (laughs) 
<laughs> and yes, people people <laughs> yes. get pretty antsy. Yes, and they want success now, and everybody wants the leads to go out and sign this guy, that guy, this guy, this guy, <laughs> and it's just not possible. But no. you know, we're we're in you know the hottest hockey market uh, aside from maybe Montreal uh, on the universe, and everybody gets a little antsy and. Now, the only other thing I could see happening, the possibilities are sign and trade deals where, you know, maybe uh, St. Louis signs Petrangelo to a deal that the, the Leafs would agree on, and then they could trade someone for him. Uh, those are possibilities. But again, with the flat cap of 81 and a half million for the next three years, Boy, oh boy, it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens in this free agent market because, uh, you know, unless guys are willing to take less money, uh, I, I'm not sure that a whole lot of these guys are going to get signed. I mean, who's going to sign them? No one's got the extra cast sitting around uh, cap room to sign these guys. Well, let's take Petrancho again. I mean, he's the name of topic in Toronto right now. He's the target that uh, all the fans want to see. So let's take him. I mean, if he agrees to come for two or three years, fine. I mean, no, nobody would love to see him more in a uniform than you and I with the Maple Leaf crest on the front. But the fact remains, he's 30 years old. He is a declining asset as the years go along. And he's going to get seven years from somebody. Well, come year four, five, six, or seven, or five, six, or seven, he may not have been playing regular shift. And he may have been paid most of his money. And keep in mind, the signing of John Tavares at $11 million cap hit He's going to be in the same boat where he's going to slow down. It's, just, it's not a question of him being a bad player. It's just a question of getting older. And, you know, skills are starting to fade after 10, 12 years of playing in the National Hockey League. And do you really want to risk having up to $20 million on your cap hit for a couple of players that are not maybe even playing? Well, no, and, and that's the thing. I mean, Petrangelo is kind of a maybe a rare breed in that respect that he's very efficient. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't wear himself out out there. He's a real smart player, knows where to go, knows where to be. Uh, so in that respect, but, but hey, if you sign for seven years or eight years and you're 30 years old, there's no question that the last three years are going to be declining. There's no question. I mean, uh, it, it's just, it's logic. I mean, and, and it's going to happen. I mean, you see it all the time, but, um, you know, it's, 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 it's too bad because, uh, you know, it, how would things look if we didn't have a cap? Imagine well, that. Well, Imagine like oh, yeah. back in the 2000s before yeah. the cap came along where the Leafs, the Rangers, and teams like that were spending like $80, $90 million, $100 million. Um, you could almost buy yourself a cup. And, uh, but now, it's going to be very difficult. And, and yeah, if they could get him on a three-year deal or a four-year deal at, at a reasonable number, it'd be worth it. But going beyond that, I, I don't think it's worth it. 
Listen, I listen. He's not going to do that. He'd be silly to do that. If he can get seven years, take the seven years because this is this is the last big ticket he's going to get. And here's his one opportunity to really cash in. He's going to take advantage of that. Just look at Detroit. Twenty-five years without missing the playoffs, four Stanley Cups, and now yeah. they become a bottom feeder. And they're they're three, four, five years and even being even more close to being contending again. So there's an example where it's run its course. And that's what you don't, in this National Hockey League of today, you can't get yourself in that position anymore. So you do have to look, even though it's a win-now league, you do have to keep your eye on the future just slightly. Well, they, yeah, there's no question. And, I mean, they, they've, they've made some good drafts. And, you know, I'd like to see them uh, perhaps draft bigger guys. Uh, when you look at the numbers over the past three or four years and the size of the players that the Leafs have drafted, uh, you know, there are guys that are playing uh, junior hockey or over in, in Europe that are skilled, fast, and they're also big. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the two teams that are in the Stanley Cup final, okay, for the most part, they're pretty big teams. And even the little guys, Tyler Johnson, Yanni Gore, these guys, they, they are taking their shots at, <laughs> at yeah. bigger guys. Uh, you know, and, and they're working their tails off. So um, unless you're going to get guys like that that are going to play that way and, they're, and they have that skill and speed, then, you know, maybe it's, it's time to look at guys. Maybe they're not quite as skilled or quite as fast, but they're big, physical, and they can go in and retrieve pucks and make things happen. Well, we are just around the corner from free agency, so it's definitely a subject we're going to be talking about clearly going to be talking about and debating over the next few weeks so we'll definitely be circling back uh standing cup playoffs next time we come to the air it should be probably over so we'll have lots to talk about on that but it'll be free agency next so before we sign off uh, anything you want to add before we close squid no just that i love listening to the the kids uh as we call them yeah and uh uh just their their love of the, the game and their passion for the game and uh uh, you know, you look at Jesse, for instance, like played in 11 different leagues or something or 11 countries, 11 leagues. you know, he's been all over the world and got a little, little bit of a, a, a cup of coffee with Vancouver. And, uh, you know, so he did get to play in the NHL and uh, the passion these guys have. I love it. I think it's great. And uh, um, the fact that they just want to keep playing hockey professionally. And it's, uh, we love, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And I, I, it's something we're going to continue to do as we move forward. We're going to keep, keep our eye on the guys from, that, that from all levels of hockey. And we want to talk to them all and let them tell their story and share that with our listeners. So we do want to thank everybody again for listening to the Hockey News, your source for all things pertaining to hockey since 1947. Remember, go to thn.com slash deal for your subscription to the Hockey News. Follow Squid and I on Twitter at Squid and the Ultimate Least Fan. Rick on Ultimate, uh, Rick is the Ultimate Rick Vibe. He is, follow him on, <laughs> on <laughs> follow him on Instagram at Rick Vibe. Speak much there, Mike? First day of the new tongue. And you got Mike now, me. You can follow me on the Ultimate Least Fan on the Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Guys, if you want to send us any kind of vote, send it to Mike at Ultimate Least Fan. Uh, send us a question or a comment about what we've been talking about, what you'd like us to talk about in the future. But again, until next week, guys, everyone have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon.